Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Dave Holman with us here today. Dave, I really appreciate your time. And I'm going to direct everybody to your website because there's a lot of content there. Go to holmanhomes.com. That's H-O-L-M-A-N, homes.com. And I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. So head over to reimastermind.net for that. But Dave, I think we were just chatting a little bit. This is kind of a, a good timing because you kind of specialize in helping immigrants and a few other things find housing in the United States. And and that's your kind of your investment strategy when it comes to real estate investing. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jack. I really appreciate the chance to be on and, and share, you know, some, some of my uh, failures and experiences with uh, the listeners so they can avoid the same and ch- try to stay on the straight and narrow. Um, and yeah, we, we do kind of specialize in hosting uh, refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants in our residential units. We have a lot of commercial units as well. And some of those are rented to people who've been in the country a little longer. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of the American dream. And, and I feel like we've gotten away from that a little bit as a country. And now, you know, with a refugee crisis in Ukraine and, and other places, we're hopefully going to get back to it, be a little more, you know, welcoming of, of people coming to our shores in search of better, you know, education, better lives for their children. And, and I think we want to support that. So it's, it's a very different um, demographic than, um, you know, what you might typically find. Um, especially like we right now are working with mostly refugees from Central Africa, you know, so there's a lot of Angolans and Rwandans, but we also have an influx of Afghan and, um, and, and those are both totally different cultures and, and require different um, sensitivities and things. But there are a lot of commonalities that, that I can share for landlords, because the key here is that you don't have to run a charity. You can make money working with refugees in a way that's fair and, and really helps both sides. Um, and that's what we found, you know, we, we don't have the ability to offer free lodging. You know, we work with investors, we have mortgages to pay and bills like everyone else, but we work with cities and local governments and nonprofit organizations that are in charge of, they're kind of the first welcome committee, if you will, of most refugees. And they then, their shelters fill up real quick. You know, they're probably already full in your local area. There's not a lot of places they are like, oh yeah, our homeless shelter is only half full. Unfortunately in America, they're, they're often tapped out and uh, they are looking to place families usually. You know, we, we don't work with just individuals usually. It's usually a, a parent and kids or two parents and kids or, or something like that, um, you know, who have come to the US and are looking uh, to move out of the shelter where they've landed, whether a temporary you know, we've taken people from gymnasiums where it was just overflow and, and things like that. Um, and they're looking to find, you know, a long-term rental. And often either the local government, the nonprofit, a federal program, a state program will pay rent for them to start out until they get their uh, work permit, which usually takes six to 12 months, or uh, they, they get enrolled in other benefits like TANF, or there's a whole bunch of programs that they might get that might then reduce the subsidy you know, for rent that they're getting from some other you know, city, state, federal entity. Um, and the goal, and we've seen this happen, and this is the part that'll make you really proud as a landlord. The goal is to transition them from this temporary public subsidy 
to them, you know, working their butts off at jobs and paying you their hard earned money and them sending their kids to school, building savings, getting cars, getting vehicles. And one of the greatest feelings is when they upgrade, you know, and I've had tenants who came, you know, from Rwanda as refugees upgrade within our buildings and our units. And I'm now helping one of them to look to buy after two years of being in the country, you know, he's ready for an FHA loan, three and a half percent down and buy his own house for his own family. And, and I can be proud to say that we've played a critical role, you know, in that process. And it's a good feeling. I mean, you, you know, some are going to stay a lot longer and, and others will stay short times, but that's the, the goal in a nutshell. And, you know, I think there's a lot of challenges, you know, one of which is that they come with a backpack, you know, they come with a suitcase, they come with a few donated bags of groceries. I mean, they're not, they don't have a U-Haul truck ready to unload all their beds and furniture and stuff. So when I first started, I was just putting out an appeal on Facebook and, and being like, hey guys, like we're just accepting a refugee family from Rwanda. Can anyone spare some extra furniture and stuff or silverware and so forth? And there was this huge outpouring. I think people are actually hungry um, to help, you know, all across the country. And this is not a right or left kind of thing. I think when, when you give your neighbors and friends a chance to really do something good and tangible, and they know you and trust you, they know it's going to the right place. Um, you'll get hooked up. You'll, you'll be surprised at, at what you might be able to do. We've now kind of grown into like, Oh wait, there's a nonprofit that they specialize in just getting donated furniture to people that need it. And, you know, we'll kind of connect them and not be in the middle, the middleman making these checklists and so forth of things. But, um, there's a lot of different ways to, to kind of check those boxes. And, and as you grow and, and work with, these communities more and more, you can kind of systematize your approach. So I'll stop there and I'm sure you have a couple questions. Yeah. Well, it, this, this is one of those things that it just amazes me, you know, real estate investing, it does give us the power to explore not only these, I don't want to call them niches, but kind of passions. It's obvious that you're passionate about this and helping these refugees that need it most. And it does, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of I, I know a lot of personally uh, some real estate investors locally that focus on Section Eight housing, for example, and uh, it's it's a similar kind of process, really, uh, to a certain extent. But uh, I, I'm curious, like, how did you yeah. focus in on this niche? Like, how did you why how did you follow this passion, and how did you come to this passion? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, all my life, I've, I've kind of believed in that, you know, American dream experience. I mean, my ancestors on my dad's side came from, you know, Ukraine uh, as Jews fleeing, you know, the czar's uh, repression in, in the you know late 1800s, early 1900s. My mom's side, God only knows they were here in the revolution, but they're white people. They didn't, you know, they weren't born uh, in, in North America originally, and they came from Europe. And, and we're all, you know, unless you're Native American, you're, you're an immigrant here. And I think we need to recognize and honor that history and keep welcoming immigrants who are seeking a better life. And they want to be part, you know, of our democracy, our schools, our society. We should, you know, welcome them as neighbors. So that's part of it. Um, you know, part of it, I, I lived in Bolivia for four years after college, met my then girlfriend, now wife. Um, and she, you know, came up here with me in 09. Um, and she's now an American citizen. So she's an immigrant. And I think that helps me, you know, sympathize, I guess, with people that are going through the immigration system. If anyone's ever dealt with the INS, whew, boy, if you need a bureaucracy and need a reform, boy, that thing is Byzantine with a capital B. So, you know, it's, it's a hard journey for people that are coming here, whether it's fleeing violence, uh, like we're seeing now in Ukraine or, or other, you know, issues. But 
Um, I, I think, you know, we need to keep the doors open, you know, within, within reason to people coming here. And frankly, we're not having enough babies. You know, the, the old white contingency of this country, like we're not getting it on enough. Our population is going to go way down and it's only for other demographics that are keeping it up. So if we want to keep even a flat population in the coming decades, uh, the only, and I mean, only way to do that is to be open to immigration. Otherwise, we are absolutely going to become where Japan and Italy and other countries are now, where they're not uh, replacing themselves through uh, new babies. So that's, that's, that's another reason why I think it's important that we not be uh, closed to refugees, that we be open to immigrants and, and other people coming here. So talk about the the pain points you experienced. You, you talked about that very first family that you were placing. Like what, what did that navigation look like as you were uh, exploring this option? Yeah, the, f- the first family was really uh, a special experience, um, you know, because I was very hands-on with it at that time. My portfolio was smaller. I, I really had more bandwidth to be directly interfacing with our, our tenants, our residents. And so, um, you know, I, I led this online donation campaign to get all the stuff they needed um, you know, we, we have a team at Katahdin Property Management, you know, where I'm a co-founder and, and we helped um, channel all those donations to the apartment, you know, kind of outfit it, tell people what the needs were. Um, we worked with the Portland uh, Family Shelter staff who've been great. Um, and they, you know, have a social worker kind of person who does follow up with the family. But we walked them around, you know, the town, Brunswick, Maine, you know, where we place them, which is a good spot because it has a food pantry. And it has, you know, a bus system that can get you into Portland and it has some of the basic services. You know, it's really hard if you're placing a family of refugees in a rural setting where they can't walk somewhere that that may not be a good fit or they'll need people to drive them around and stuff like that. So um, it was that initial, you know, connecting them with a medical clinic that will treat them, you know, and and things like that. you know, and getting, getting them hooked up with jobs, quite frankly, once they got their work permits. And and this was a family that had come here on a green card. So they had a much easier immigration experience than a lot of the true asylum seekers that we work with. Um, And so I, at the time worked at Bowdoin college um, as a development staff. And so uh, we helped this, you know, family get jobs, you know, in, in the cafeteria in the dish room, you know, and they started working hard and they were working night shifts and, um, before you know it, it, the beauty of this guy, he's he's a ambitious young man. And before he even had his driver's license, he had bought himself a car that, that was sitting in the parking lot with his name on the license plate. So again, it was just like, oh man, like it is so gratifying to see, you know, a resident working hard and really achieving the American dream. And I have to say, like you mentioned Section 8 tenants, we have had a hard time with Section 8 tenants. They're a very different population than refugees and asylum seekers. And I would say a lot of it is that their needs are higher. You know, they, they are not able to just go out and get jobs and get off Section 8 by and large. You know, they may have a lot of mental health challenges. You know, they, they may be elderly and infirm. They're, they're all kinds of different folks on that program. And so I would say it's a very different management scenario with, with uh, refugees. Most of them are, are not mentally, you know, handicapped. They're, they're hardworking people. They, they may actually have master's degrees in their home countries. A lot of them, like there's, there's a lot of, um, I would say ability to work and succeed in that group. And some are, you know, single moms with four kids and, and they're not going to be paying their own rent anytime soon on their own necessarily. But, um, it, it is a different population. I would say the cultural hurdles are much bigger than kind of the the social mental hurdles that you get with section eight sure 
No, that that makes a lot of sense. So you, you mentioned um, like some uh, situations that you you probably have to have your property located in a in a place that has public transportation and a few other things. Are there other things that you also consider when investing in a property or placing an individual in in a property? Like what other features or functionality do you have to provide, if you will? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And and we're under contract right now on a on a 16 unit property in Portland that is all refugees and asylum seekers. Um, so it, it is definitely a direction we're going down even more. But I think another one of the things that you want to think about is a building that uh, you can pay the utilities for the tenant for the most part in the beginning. I mean, you're not going to have someone who doesn't speak English, have a bank account and have any money registering their electric bill with the local utility company. So, you know, a lot of our rents are actually over market, but it's because we're paying everything for the tenant, heat, electric, water, sewer, you know, plowing, those kind of things, you know, up here in the Northeast. So think about your willingness to at least initially pay utilities for your tenant, but get a rent that is meant to compensate you, you know, for that. You know, I think, uh, yeah, the, the urban rural thing is, is key and we're not, and we're in Maine, like we're not super urban, um, you know, and, and even I'm working outside of Portland and, and the most urban section. And even so there are, you know, there's Uber, Lyft, buses, taxis. I mean, there's ways that people can get in to the big city if they need to. So I think it's only in the truly very rural areas that, you would have uh, challenges, you know, implementing this kind of strategy. Um, and I do think it's something that, you know, you can try it out on one unit or a few units before you go kind of all in. Um, but like the building we're doing in Portland, it makes a lot of sense because it's all three bedroom units. They're very tiny kitchens and bathrooms. They're not the kind of market rate, nice kitchens and bathrooms you'd want, you know, for units. So it's not really a great market rate fit. Um, but the location is is terrific to be able to walk to food, education, immigration, everything you need, you know, very easily and with social services right nearby. I mean, that can be a really good fit for asylum seekers. And you can do it very quickly. I mean, right now we've been in a super red hot residential housing market. But when that goes down, which at some point it will, um, it's it's really nice to be able to just call the the agency that places you know immigrants and refugees and be like hey i have a vacancy can you fill it for me all right great it's filled you know like a couple years ago we were we were really enjoying that capacity now i mean we could have a line out the door if we wanted to but um you know we're still doing a mix and some buildings it's more appropriate for than others if you have a building where you're getting really high rents and they're kind of at or above market because it's really nice and high finishes you're going to take an economic hit if you place refugees there because the programs that pay their rents are probably not going to get you as much as you were getting with your granite countertops and, you know, your nicer finishes. So I think it is more of a, you know, workforce class B and C strategy and you leave the class A more for the market rate folks, um, you know, or situations where the local agency can pay a market rate and then, and then it works great. Sure. So, uh, you know, you, you're talking about market rate. Did you, do you find that you're, and you already mentioned that you, you kind of set aside a certain amount, but this one particular building that's in the middle of Portland is, is it primarily refugees? Then All hundred percent refugees. Yeah. Um, sure. So yeah. And, and the rate they're paying is not 
much less than we would get from converting it to market rate. Again, because the kitchens and bathrooms are not going to support a kind of luxury setup there. And um, we're, I, I think the Performa is, is dynamite. You know, we're, and we're getting a really good deal on it because their rents are actually, and this is a head scratcher. I mean, th- this is the uh, a little key for your listeners sometimes is like, find the building where the, the location and the structure are good, but the management is bad. Because management, you can change very easily. So right now, um, I would say this building, it, they're getting rents that are about 30% under what the local general assistance agency will pay 100% on behalf of these tenants for them. And I see this too with Section 8 sometimes where like the Section 8 rent might be 1500 but the landlord's only getting 1100 and the tenant's paying like 5% or 10% of their rent or, or, or 0%. And I'm like, you know, you could increase that to 1500 and the tenant would still only have to pay 150 bucks a month, right? Like you're just cheating yourself out of money by not paying attention. And that is the case a lot of times where if you work with these agencies, you talk to the staff there, I mean, they'll tell you, oh, oh the rate's going up June 1st. So June 1st, you can just increase your rent by 10%. Um, and their rates are keeping up with inflation. I mean, the, the general assistance rate in Portland went up 9% last year. So, you know, that I expect to keep happening. And, and I think that's not a bad arrangement because a lot of rents, you might sign a lease where you're only going up 3% a year or something like that. Um, whereas with these mm-hmm. programs, you can go up a relatively healthy amount. And the beauty is that the tenant who is very needy doesn't have much money. They're not bearing that burden. That is a you know public service, essentially, that we as a society are agreeing it's worth doing rather than having them on the street. You know, And the idea is that it's temporary. Um, you know, for most of them, if they, you know, they're hungry to work, that's what I found is they are ready to take these, these jobs that are posted all around. I mean, we have this labor crisis all across the country and these are great people to come and take these jobs and help us, you know, do the things we need to do that are not the glamour jobs all the time. You know, my tenants are working in car washes. They're working, you know, in, in dish rooms and kitchens and stuff, and they're working hard, but um, it allows them to pay the rent you set at a market rate because um, that's their number one priority is to keep a roof over their heads. And um, we've had you know very good results with them overall. No, the, the the section eight thing that you just brought up is is of hits home because that recently was something I experienced. I I have a rental property about an hour from here, and uh, I needed to hit a certain target to make sure uh, certain things are being going to be taken care of, and. Uh, I, I didn't even occur to me until I started to look into it was regarding the section eight, because those residents have, there was a couple of re- section eight residents in there. Those residents rent was actually lower than everybody else's. So then when I called the section eight office and I asked them like, uh, you know, I have the previous landlord didn't keep up with this very well. I really need to raise this. That's when things started to uncover and, oh, totally. and instead of that 3%, I was able to increase those units by a couple hundred dollars each. I mean, that was that was a significant change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I just call them up and talk with them and say like, hey, you know, this tenant's at 800, market is 1200. You know, how much can I increase the rent without them having to pay more? And it's like, oh, I could only go to 1100, you know, right now without that. But if I go to 1200, do they have to pay that whole 
hundred dollars or, you know, how does that work? And, and it can be a negotiation with both the tenant and the agency, but I think there are fair ways to do that that don't just create homelessness and kick people out of their their longtime apartments, but that also help compensate you as a landlord a little more. And, you know, maybe if they're working part time, you know, we have a couple like retired, you know, single women who have a part time job. And could they afford to pay 400 bucks a month more? No. Could they afford to pay 50 if you're raising the rent 250 and 200 falls on Section 8 and 50 falls on them? Like, yeah, they, they could. And, you know, that's probably within their their capacity. So I think it's just being a good communicator, both with the, you know, services agencies you're working with and with your tenants uh, as well. So you're talking about uh, different refugees coming from different com- countries. Is Have you found that anything you had to adapt to regarding culture? Huge, huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's really important to think on the cultural side of it. Like, do they have refrigerators in their homes where they're coming from? Like, how do they store food? Is that going to create pest problems? You know, a lot of our refugee community are storing rice in big burlap sacks. And, you know, what we need to do is like, it's, it's worth it for you as a landlord to pay five bucks to buy them a plastic tub to put that in than to pay 500 bucks to the pest company to start coming and dealing with rodents or cockroaches or whatever, you know? So um, you got to think of kind of preventative uh, preemptive action to help keep that unit in good condition you know, teach them about how we do dishes and clean and how we cook and, and just make sure they know to use bathroom fans and vent fans because their bathrooms were a latrine outside, or, you know, something like that, that um, you kind of, it's a little more hands-on where you may have to kind of teach them how to be a successful resident, but there's a lot of local agencies that can do that for you if you want to partner with them, if you're in an urban area. So again, it may not have to be your staff. You can reach out, you know, to some different either cultural organizations. You know, if you're getting a lot of people from, you know, Angola, there might be an Angolan American association and you could reach out to them and say, Hey, could I pay, you know, one of your people a hundred bucks to come and like do workshops, you know, with my tenants to kind of teach them how to take care of these units. And like your hundred dollar investment could save you thousands of repair bills or, you know, like don't get like a big one we have is um, bucket bathing, um, they're, you know, using buckets for their, you know, bath time. Cause that's the way they're used to doing it. But when the bucket spills, it inundates the floor. And if the floor isn't well caulked, then that inundates the person below you. So, you know, working on sealing up bathrooms better, but also working on just saying, Hey, we can't do that. You know, and if this keeps happening, like you're going to have to pay some of this repair bill, you know, like we need to make sure that we're, we're treating the plumbing here the way it's supposed to be treated and, you know, teaching them not to put, all their bacon grease and stuff down the drain, put that in the trash, which frankly, many of my American tenants struggle with. Um, so, you know, I think they're, they're as a landlord, you know, you know, I almost think of like the hotels where you see the little signs kind of teaching you, Oh, the use, put the towels here, put the soap there, like put that up in your units, you know, like there's no harm in putting that in the local languages, you know, if they're literate, which most of them are, um, you know, and, and kind of guiding people on how you want your units treated because culturally they, they, weren't born knowing the right way to do it. They didn't grow up here necessarily. So another question I have then is, is how long do you find that these, these residents stay? Like uh, what, what is your tenure? We try to orient all of our properties to be very long-term for people. And so we're willing to keep rents five, 10, maybe even 15% under market to avoid turnover and avoid the, the nice renovation stuff that we might want or have to do when the unit turns over. 
Um, and so many of our refugees are still with us now and we place them in the last two years. So I wish I could tell you that we have a 10 or 20 year track record and this is the average, but I think one to two years is going to be typical, which is typical of any residential tenant, quite frankly. So it's not shorter than average. And I think if anything, ours will probably be longer than average because once we find the ones that are working well and we like, we're going to keep them and, and keep on going. Um, and they may not want to need to move or moving may be a kind of expensive, scary prospect for them, um, you know, going to a different place. So it kind of depends on the family. Others are like, oh, I came to your building in your town, but I now know that the big Afghan community kind of lives over on this other town or other place. And they're going to want to go there and be with their people once they've kind of got their feet in the ground. So it, it depends, you know, and, and I'm kind of open to it. I don't, you know, I don't want to keep them longer than they want to be. I don't want them to have to leave quickly. It's, it's, it's kind of up to them. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say the turnover is any worse than any other units, market rate units we manage. So give us a couple of the lessons you've learned. Like what, what are some of the things that you wished you would have known before you jumped into this? Um, well, when it comes to working with refugees, I think, um, the benefit of working with the agencies and programs and really like calling them and just finding out what services can they offer? How can you kind of hook these refugees up and, and set them up for success and give them other people who are their point of contact when they need food or they need a ride or things like that? The more that you, you know, cause my, my parents joked with me when we first placed our first tenants, they were like, Dave, you're, you're not just their landlord. You're kind of their social worker too. I was like, yeah, I, I kind of am right now, but I'm hoping to like work myself out of that. And I did quickly. And I think that is what the guidance I would give to your listeners is if you're taking families from Ukraine, from Afghanistan, from wherever it may be, um, you can either start out as their social worker or have someone else do that. But that is an important role that has to be filled. And most of the agencies placing those people will be doing that anyway, kind of regardless at, to some degree. But the more layers of uh, kind of support you can provide to them, the less that falls on you and your staff, which ultimately, you know, we're real estate investors, we're landlords, we're, we're dealing with the next deal, the next project, you know, different things. And um, I, I can't be doing tours of the local food pantry every day. <laughs> like we need to figure out systems to kind of help those uh, asylum seekers be successful, you know, uh, without all of our staff, you know, doing things that could be done by others. Yeah. No, I, I especially kind of relate to that because as you start to learn and, and meet these individuals, it, you know, I had a recent situation where I had to start in, unfortunately, an eviction process on, on a resident. And it gets really hard, especially the more you know them. And I, I would have to think that that's especially uh, difficult in, in this situation. Yeah, we've never had to evict um, one of the refugee tenants. They they generally the problem you would have is they 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 don't always know to tell you about their plans until they happen. So some like you'll just find out like oh in three days you're moving to Texas. Okay, uh, GTK. You know, um, well thanks for staying here. You've been great. Bye. Um, you know that's much more common. I would say that they're just moving and you don't know about it or like one of them, which is kind of a weird situation. Like he moved out without telling us, we found out from one of the other refugees in the building, but his 18 year old son who's going to high school has stayed in the unit and they're going to keep paying rent. And it's like, Oh, okay. Would have been good to know. Um, not sure we would have necessarily wanted that to happen, but it's happened and we'll just kind of roll with it for now. So, you know, you get, 
again, it's cultural differences of like, they're not, they didn't know that maybe you should keep your landlord in the loop on things a month or two prior to the moves that some of the locals might do. So um, you got to kind of be flexible, but I haven't found it to be a huge barrier. Yeah. No, this has been especially interesting. I I just really think this is a, a, a strong niche, especially in the current environment and a few other things that are going on. It's funny you bring up the, uh, uh, the U.S. population not having babies. I mean, Elon Musk even has brought that up. I mean, we've we've seen that brought up uh, a few times in the public sphere now. Totally. And, and I think in the next 10 to 20 years, it's going to become a much bigger issue because, you know, we, we're kind of peaking and on the descending side of, of fertility. And that's a global trend. And quite frankly, I think it's great because we're killing the planet with 7 billion people. So if we can gently, nonviolently, peacefully, kind of right size humanity over the next hundred years, um, you know, that, that would not be such a bad thing, but I think anytime that a trend is, is accelerating in one direction or the other, whether population explosion or population crash, let's try to moderate that. And I think immigration is a really key factor of if we are able to take people from other countries that are not criminals, that are hardworking, that want to come here and work, um, that's going to be great for our economy. It really is. We, we need workers in a big way. And, uh, you know, being a landlord, a real estate investor who helps facilitate, you know, these kind of transitions, um, I think is really rewarding. So just to remind everybody, head over to holmanhomes.com. And uh, if you want to get a hold of Dave and, and his team, but uh, Dave, this has been a great conversation. I, it's very fascinating what you're doing and, and how this is working for you. Um, but before I let you go, is there a question you wished I would have asked you here today? Thanks. Um, I, I do a lot with um, green energy and insulation. So you could ask about that. And I could tell you that I think if you're a landlord, especially of a small property in a part of the country that has a high heating or cooling load, especially if you're paying the utilities, uh, look at insulation, talk to experts about that. See if there's ways that you can save yourself money. You're going to do something good for the environment. You know, people think of green energy and they just think of solar panels, which to me is like on the food pyramid of smart landlording. That's like at the very tippy top. It's not the lowest hanging fruit. You know, insulation, air sealing, um, looking at your heating and cooling systems, uh, looking at heat pumps. Those are things that can have, you know, 20 to 100 percent a year returns on investment if you do them right. Well, maybe you'll want to come back and we can kind of deeper dive on just that topic, because I know that, I mean, we probably could fill another half hour just on that. Would love to, would love to to hop on again and uh, happy to, you know, be in touch with you and any of your listeners. Well, thanks for your time and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Jack. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.